Forty Futures is a speculative fiction series about the criminal justice system, written and read by Jason Taché. Metatentiary. Jay awoke in bed and was pleased with his new surroundings. It was clean and simple. A desk, a chair, a translucent screen for TV and movies, a couple of windows, and a door. Pretty good for virtual reality, he thought. It certainly beat the brick-and-mortar prisons he was used to. Jay was, in corrections parlance, a frequent flyer. Having done multiple stints for armed robbery and burglary in the past, he was happy to wake up at Eastern State Metatentiary, a pilot program for the hard to correct. He rolled over and looked out the window of his cottage to see sky, grass, and sun. Getting up, he moved towards the closet where semi-translucent boxes hovered, each a clothing option. The boxes had titles like jumpsuit, streetwear, and professional. They each accompanied images of Jay wearing the respective outfit. Having been provided by the prison, jumpsuit was the only option with a wear button. The other boxes showed prices, how much Jay currently had in his CTA, his commissary trust account, and a purchase option in bright red. Hoping to look more like himself when his son visited later that day, he bought the t-shirt and jeans streetwear package and clicked wear. His body was immediately clad in the familiar outfit and his CTA shrank by 49 points. After a once-over in the mirror, he stepped outside. Having spent most of his life in a city or prison, Jay was taken aback to see open space. There were cottages like his own spread out in front of him and rolling hills in the distance. With no walls or guard towers, he assumed that this is what Vermont must be like. Good morning, Jay. Welcome to Eastern State Metatentiary said a disembodied voice from a screen that popped up in front of him. I'm Michelle, and I have some updates for you, if you'd like. Uh, sure, said Jay as he glanced around to see if other inmates could see and hear what he was witnessing. Today is Tuesday, March 14th. You have been at Eastern State Metatentiary for one day, stated Michelle. You have 1,824 more days until you are eligible for release. 1,824 more days, the number rattled around Jay's head as he looked around the verdant campus. Maybe this time we'll go by faster than the others, he thought. Eastern State is a modern and humane place for reform, Michelle continued. Records show that you completed high school. If you'd like to enroll in a college degree program, please see Kayla at the Education Building. If we can provide you physical or mental health support, please visit Jenna at the Medical Pavilion. If you have any further questions, just say, Hey, Michelle, and I'll appear. Have a good day. All right, what time is it? He asked. Silence. Jay looked around and waited. Having never held an office job, he didn't know how to troubleshoot IT. Waving his hands where the screen just was, he realized his error. Hey, Michelle, what time is it? It's 9.06 in the morning. I have almost a half hour, Jay thought. Hey, Michelle, where's family visitation? Head due east past the residential area and the media shop, and you'll find the visitation center, explained Michelle. 
Would you like me to project a map for you? No, I'll figure it out, said Jay, assuming the sun, even in virtual reality, rose in the east. He headed out through the residential area on a cobbled path. As he walked, he glanced into people's cottages through cross-hatched windows. He saw that posters and ephemera lined walls and shelves of fellow inmates that could not have been here much longer than him. At the boundary of the residential area was a rustic white fence, and the cobbled path turned to pavement. To the right, there were a few bicycles nestled under a metal hutch. With time to spare, Jay decided to walk. After a few minutes, he came upon the media shop on his left. The building looked like the old Art Deco-style theaters that used to dot his hometown of Baltimore. The building's sign, in Atlas font, was framed by warm purple, green, and orange lights that ran up past the roof. The portico was a rounded half-moon, like an inverted wedding cake, with bright light bulbs leading to a ticket box. His attention to the building's nostalgic construction was obscured by more pop-ups, like what he had seen around his closet earlier that morning. Instead of clothes, however, these promoted the newest TV shows, movies, and performances that Jay and the others could stream at their cottages. A single episode of a medical drama costs 15 points. Another 35 points, and you can see an action movie that was still in theaters. They had live sports, too. He nodded his head and smiled with the acknowledgement that he would never watch a fight break out over a TV remote again. Then, in a smash cut, he went from admiring the polychromatic theater to seeing only the color blue. Hey! A man yelled. Shocked from his reverie, it took Jay a moment to realize that he was not experiencing an error screen, but lying on the ground and looking at the sky. Propping himself up on his elbow, he saw a large man with a goatee and shaved head standing over him. His round scalp blocked out the morning sun. Watch where you're going, pumpkin, the man said as he spat towards Jay's splayed-out avatar before taking a lumbering step over him. Dazed but relieved, Jay collected himself and went to wipe the spit off of his shirt, but there was nothing there. He replayed the scene in his mind. Looking at his dry shirt, he hadn't detected the guy when he walked into him. He didn't feel his push. He didn't smell his breath, which, judging by the look of him, was awful. He didn't even feel the ground when he fell. Even his decade-old hamstring injury didn't appear when he helped himself off the ground. He straightened his shirt and walked a little taller with a new confidence that he couldn't be hurt in the metatentiary. He arrived for his family visit a few minutes early. Sitting at a picnic table, he positioned himself so he could see the door where his son and girlfriend would enter with the other visitors. He was nervous but excited. He last saw his family when he received his sentence. A terrible memory. His return to crime was a selfish act, jeopardizing everything he had built since his last bid, which had him two states away from his family. When the Department of Corrections gave him the option to take part in the Meditentiary pilot program, he leapt at the opportunity. While he couldn't be with his family, at least they didn't have to spend days traveling to see him. Now, at the designated time, they were a click away. 
A door leading from the visitor center opened, and a small boy came rushing onto the green. Ben! Jay yelled. As the boy's head jerked towards his father, his moppish brown hair twirled. A smile broke over both of their faces. He came running across the grass and stopped short of Jay, who had his arms out. Dad? The boy looked skeptically at Jay. Yes, it's me, said Jay, bursting with excitement to see his son. I probably just look a little different because we're in that video game I told you about. But it's me. I'm still your dad. Ben inched closer. What's the password? He whispered. Yogi and Boo Boo, Jay smirked. Shaggy and Scooby, too. Ben's eyes lit up and he leapt to hug his dad as tight as he could. Jay opened his eyes and looked down to see the top of Ben's head. His brown hair was shaggier and darker than he remembered. He didn't know if Ben had grown or if the avatar was just taller. In his moment of solace, Jay breathed deep to take it all in. Exhaling, he felt something missing, that faint, comforting scent of detergent. Home. He pulled Ben closer and breathed in again. Nothing. Jay took a step back and looked at his arms. He couldn't feel Ben's warmth, either. He pumped his hands into fists a couple of times, as if improving circulation would fix the glitch, as if circulation existed at all. Disoriented, he looked at Ben's expectant and cherubic face. Then his stomach dropped. Pop-ups hovered above his son. Multisensory mask smells like the real world, read one. Haptic vest, upper body sensations never felt so good, read another. Each was significantly more than what was in Jay's CTA. Without enough money, the purchase buttons were disabled. However, he saw a blue button he hadn't seen earlier. It read, Rent. Not even two hours into his 1,825 days, he was ready to empty his virtual CTA for 15 minutes of reality. Pressing the blue button, the restraints on his incarceration loosened, and he breathed in a more complex consciousness. While synthetic, the smells were adjacent enough to the real thing that Jay, all at once, noticed the grass beneath his feet, the sun-soaked wood of the picnic table he stood next to, and the mix of Ben's toothpaste and clean shirt. As the air shifted the melange around him, Jay sensed something else, transported to their East Baltimore row home. Looking up past the facsimile of his son, he caught his girlfriend's silhouette in high contrast against the mid-morning sun. Overcome, Jay began to cry. But the tears never came. Hello and welcome back to 40 Futures. I am Jason Tache and we did it. We got there. This is the 10th episode of the first volume, the last episode, and I cannot thank you enough for coming along with me on this ride. In today's commentary, I'm going to focus on one specific issue that pulls through this volume of stories, and that is the economic environment in which the criminal justice system exists in both today in the United States, but also within the stories that I have been writing. And as much as it is a critique about incentives within the criminal justice system, what it's really about is this idea of perverse incentives, an economic term, which basically says that 
monetary incentives are created that then create undesirable results. And very much the story of the criminal justice system today is one of perverse incentives, whereas we have further either privatized aspects of the criminal justice system, bringing in economic incentives to private actors, or created economic incentive for government actors, which I'll get into as well, then what we've done is we have not prioritized public safety within the criminal justice system. Rather, what we've done is incentivized having increased contact with people to have more defendants, to have more arrestees, to have more people in prisons, to have more people in parole and probations because there is money to be made there. And that creates a bad system, which is exactly what this story and so many others in this series get at. Jay personifies the individual who has wound up in the criminal justice system that is then being used as a means of economic extraction as opposed to reform. This is a problem in both private and public applications in the criminal justice system. This isn't just something that exists because we privatize parts of these government services. If we look on the public side, there are so many fines and fees that governments charge people that are involved in the justice system. On the fine side, I mean, these could be criminal or civil for usually low-level offenses like traffic, some minor drug possession offenses, for example. They're usually not for a ton of money in the large sense of things, a few hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars, but depending on where you fall in our society on the socioeconomic scale, it could be a lot of money. And then these things begin to pile up over time and fines are added to fees. And then it becomes a real problem where what could have been a minor civil infraction at the beginning turns into a criminal one, functionally perpetuating uh, something that we supposedly got rid of, which would be debtor's prisons. And then there were fees themselves, I mean, just to access the justice system, to file a case, to go through probation or parole. These costs are getting shifted, and I talked about this in earlier episodes, from the government agencies themselves to the individuals that are a part of this particular system. Governments become reliant on this money. In Ferguson, Missouri, the Department of Justice in 2015 did a large report on the Ferguson Police Department, and it found that 23% of city revenue was solely from fines and fees. Like The fines and fees were an economic engine of that small community. It was something like 30,000 people live in Ferguson, but 90,000 people a year were given fines or fees within Ferguson's city limits, which that's absolutely wild. But it's not just related to police forces in Louisiana. Uh, During the pandemic, judges took a pay cut in 2021 because a part of their pay is tied to how much they bring in through fines and fees, which sounds like I'm making it up. It's so ham-fistedly bad, but these types of incentives exist for public agencies all over the country. And the problem only gets worse when you begin to look into the privatization of these systems. You think about prisons. There was a report from about 10 years ago which found that a majority of private prison contracts at the state level had bed quotas, this idea that a prison had to have a minimum number of people in beds at all times. And these bed quotas are not small. They're anywhere between, uh, the report said, an average of 70% to 100% capacity needs to be filled at all times. 
Otherwise, the government isn't the Department of Corrections in that state is in breach of contract, and those lawsuits then get filed for millions of dollars. Uh, we also see this with privatized probation and parole services, where again, there's this cost shifting where individuals, the parolees and the probationers themselves, are expected to pay for their own oversight, which is entirely backwards. And then, of course, there is the bail system. The United States is unique in having a bail system. It is just us and the Philippines, as far as cash bail is concerned. And this puts the a price on freedom that many can't afford, even though it may be only a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. And then it puts bail bondsmen in the middle, creating an economic incentive for a system that we do not need for the sake of public safety. Uh, the most obvious example to this is in New Jersey in 2014, got rid of its cash bail system, and it saw violent crime go down in the years after that policy change. So this is all to say that this is a bad system that forsakes public safety for economic gain. And that's both, again, on the public and the private side. It is economic redistribution from those with the least to those with the most, to those in power, which is exactly where we end up with Jay in the penitentiary. So even in a well-intentioned system that are employing what are considered best practices at the time and a form of kindness, which the penitentiary certainly seems to be trying to do, with added services, whether they're mental health or education. But ultimately, we end up back in the land of the perverse incentive. Whether this was a public project, which it probably wouldn't be because of its technical needs, or more likely a private project, the theme is that market forces, whether they are investors, the need to make a profit, the need to be pulling money into government coffers, will always win out over the best practices, the well-intentioned nature of the creators of these particular programs. And not just in the penitentiary. in this particular volume of stories, the brain-computer interface and tasteless in the first story, the smart crete and the gate analysis, the expungement hackers, the sheriff trading his data, his county's and department's data for better terms on its contract, the chips and prisoners in the last story, the problems that come about due to those technologies are not necessarily on account of the technology itself, but rather the economic system that it exists in. And this gets me to a big point that I have been thinking about a lot in this series and think about a lot in general when it comes to work in the justice space. And it's this interview that Ezra Klein did with Ted Chang, the science fiction writer. And he made this point, and the interview is in the show notes, that regardless of the technology itself, most of our fears about technology aren't about the technology. They are about the economic system in which the technology is going to be deployed. In that interview, he is specifically talking about artificial intelligence and how it's capitalism that is going to want to use artificial intelligence to automate people's jobs and to take away people's livelihoods to push down costs. By contrast, if we lived in an economic system with a broader social safety net, then the fear would look different towards that particular technology because the expectation would be that certain needs of people in the community would be met regardless of technology's progression and technology's application within society. And I think that's entirely true of tech generally, but also for this for-profit incentive in the criminal justice space. Because so long as we are 
incentivizing the need to have increased contact with the criminal justice system. And this means more defendants, more of those arrested, more of those incarcerated, more of those on community release programs like probation and parole, that regardless of public safety, we will continue to maximize for the profit incentive as opposed to the public safety of our communities, which is what the criminal justice system should be doing anyway. And because it is easier to imagine the end of the earth than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, I think this is how the meditentiary gets there. I think this is how the criminal justice system continues to double down on perverse incentives, regardless of what's good for those in the criminal justice system themselves and the public at large in which the criminal justice system is meant to protect. And so I think that is how we get there. And with that, I'd like to thank you one more time for listening to 40 Futures. Specifically, I want to give a thank you to Justin Serber, who helped get this last episode across the finish line. As far as what's next for the 40 Futures project, there are three or four stories I am already working on for volume two. But at this time, I do not have a sense of when that release date is going to be. With that said, if you have enjoyed this show and you feel like you know other people that could enjoy this show as well, I I could ask two things from you. Is one, share this with folks that you think would be interested and also rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those ratings really do help us beat the algorithm and find other listeners that would be interested in this content. And at the end of the day, the point of this project has been to increase the people that care about these issues and not just continue to preach to the choir, those in the justice space. So if you know people out there that may be interested, please do share this with them. So with that, one last time in this volume, thank you for listening to 40 Futures. For links to what I talked about today, please check out the show notes or go to justicetech.download. That is the URL. This is a project written, recorded, and produced by me, Jason Tache. If you like what you heard and here it is again, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm not sure when I will be back in your feed next, but until then, take care.